1: Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Monday the 12th. Please do not forget Valentine's two days from now. Make sure you get your shopping done now. Go get the cards today. All of that stuff. We have a fantastic show. First up, we have Vishal Shaw. He is with a company called Screencastify. They are in the educational software space. You know, I love educational entrepreneurship. So I'm excited to meet him. After that, Dr. Melanie Vandevelde will be with us. She is author of a new book called Lead Like a Genius. <laughs> That's a, a good goal. I feel like I lead like a moron sometimes. I'm sure you feel that way too. Being the boss. I think is the hardest part of being an entrepreneur. You know, if you're successful enough and lucky enough to grow and get big and all of that, some of the things that happen along the way are sure scary. I remember once I needed a guy and the best candidate was from California. had a family and I, as I think I was 27 at this time had to decide whether to hire him or not, which would mean his kids leaving school in the middle of senior year or something like that. That's a huge impact and a huge decision to make as an entrepreneur. And when you get into business, you don't expect that, you know, you think, "Oh, I have to sell, I have to make, you know, fulfillment and all of that. And then I'll have all the money and get wealthy. And you never think about the hard part and the things that we never talk about entrepreneurship making the decision, whether to move a family of someone else or not. And so anyway, I think that, uh, Dr. Van de Velda's book and title lead like a genius will be a really interesting one. So excited for that. And I think we got a great show. We've got some great stuff coming up this week. We're going to be talking about the metaverse at work or u- work using the metaverse, a whole bunch of other stuff. Great stuff coming up. We'll be right back.
1: business at any stage from concepts to exit Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn he tweets from at entrepreneur Jim and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show
2: we are back and again still so very appreciative that you are with us today very excited to introduce my first guest he is an entrepreneur in my favorite space education I just think that us entrepreneurs have not fixed education yet. It's still a broken space, obviously looking at the test scores. And you all know that I started off in the education space with my first entrepreneurial endeavor. And so I'm excited to welcome Vishal Shaw to the show. He is a Chicago based now in Palo Alto, I think, or in and out both of the places, uh, running a company called. Screen Castify. It is merged with or earlier merged with Learn Core, a company that he started. And he's had several, several startups along the way in uh the space. He also started a company called Catapult Chicago, which was a nonprofit there helping in the startup community, and originally came out of uh Intel and Citigroup for his corporate experience. Vishal, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and and sharing that background. I'm happy to make make a couple updates there, but no, I mean, it's a really good thing. What did I get wrong?
2: Help us fix it. What what does Screencastify
0: do? It's kind of a a trick trick thing. My area code is uh, Palo Alto area code. Um, I used to live there, but now... uh, Fully based here in Chicago. Okay, full-time Chicago. All right. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it, there's a lot of interweaving different things. In your company, and though, that. is it
2: we're... in Palo Alto at all?
0: No, we're, okay, we're based Dakota, in Chicago. Chicago even better. Yep, yep, yep. Because, you know,
2: all, all I think it's all of the world against Palo Alto, in my opinion.
0: That's right, that's right. You know, <laughs> it was interesting. We, uh, my first company, we actually... I was in the San Francisco Bay area when we started it and we moved to Chicago just, uh, you know, months after starting it. And uh, in Palo Alto, it's like, you're a, it's, you're a small, you're always a small fish in a big pond. But in Chicago, we became a big fish in a small pond by being the same size. So, you know, Indirectly, directly, just got a lot more support and and it really felt like a good spot for us. It was counterintuitive, definitely, uh, than you'd think for tech startups.
2: Tell us about Screencastify and how it helps education.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So Screencastify is one of the easiest to use um, and widely used video platforms that are out there. It's very easy for people to create, record uh, edit and share videos, um, and we are deeply in the K through 12 education space—a uh, space that's near and dear to many of us. We've gone through the system. We've are either parents there or know uh, of parents that are uh, that have their kids in the system, and um, so we're broadly used there. We have um, in the past year close to 500,000 teachers. That have used our product to, you know, record videos and really scale them as individuals, and so it's a it's a big mission that that we're really going after here. We're based in Chicago, about uh, sixty people, um, mostly in Chicago, but we do have folks all over um, U.S. and uh, a couple international, and uh, yeah, our our out here really trying to make an impact and continue to improve what we have. But there's obviously a lot of headwinds and a lot of challenges in education in general.
2: Yes, there are, but a lot of money right now. So that's good for the entrepreneurial space. Exactly. What does it do though? You know, so I understand that you help edit and create videos. So a lot of places do that. iMovie does that. What's the secret sauce that makes it better for education and Take me to the next level.
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, double-clicking into it, um, we have uh, a workflow and integration um, with Google for Education and uh, uh, the Google platform. Google Chromebooks has, you know, approximately 60 to 70% market share uh, in the U.S. of just the devices that are in the K-12 space. And internationally, it's increasing... And so um, the way that our product works is, it is very easy to use. You can use a lot of these other um, apps. And yes, there's many ways to create videos, but it's one of the easiest that goes within the Google for EDU workflow. Um, beyond that, we are bringing in a variety of, um, you know, translation and transcription components. And one thing that you realize is, people learn differently. You know, we were talking to a a school district here in Illinois um, and they have the languages that are primary languages. There are quite, quite varied. Um, English is obviously there. There's Spanish. Uh, The other one that jumped up in the top of the list is a language called Urdu. And uh, you know, it's uh, from a remote uh, region in India um, is where it originated. And so, uh, what you realize is just as the as you go to different places, there's just different ways of communicating. And, um, and we're uh, going to be rolling out kind of all these different translation services um, where it allows people to learn best how they prefer. Some are more visual, some are more audio-based, some like to read it. Um, and so as it ties in with the workflow, there's nothing extra that Uh, educator or teacher really needs to do. And, you know, these teachers, they're strapped for time. There aren't enough. The teacher attrition rate is sky high. And you would think that yes, there's more funding coming into it. Uh, Teachers still need support there um, for what they're doing and and that's what they have. So schools are constantly battling with that. And then, um, you know, after COVID, the world has changed uh, quite dramatically, uh, where, uh, funding has come and gone. And so a lot of schools are actually going with, um, the reverse, much less funding in, in general.
2: Interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, boy, are you right about the attrition of teachers? You know, we get an email from my kids school and it seems like every other email is this teacher is leaving in the middle of the year and, you know, here's how we're going to shuffle and solve the problem.
0: Yeah. So, I got me four. How old are your kids? I'm sorry, say what? If you don't mind me asking, how old are your kids? Oh, this is, uh,
2: get ready to laugh, Vishal. So I have four. They range from, let's see, we go 26, 24, 13, and eight. Okay. So I have kids all through the public school system, all all the way, including public college uh and
1: you know no, very so you- active
2: in technology education uh we choose the innovation schools, so our kids now the youngsters go to an innovation charter school, which we are very happy with and let me ask or tell you about a project that we are doing my thirteen year old built his first computer over the weekend, just uh this last wow. weekend from scratch, he picked out the components on amazon and you know, picked out the graphic card he wanted in the you know processor he went with a one of the new i seven processors and picked out every single yeah. component put the whole thing together himself and it actually worked and we did that you know we didn't really want to spend that money. it was out of budget when he came to us with this proposal and so the parental response Vishal, was to make him make a video of it so that we could. Video him as a 13-year-old making his first computer so that we could put that as part of his college applications perhaps one day. We also have a video of him when he was seven solving the Rubik's Cube in 32 seconds, which was his personal best. So we're collecting these videos and... We have to have the eight- year- old involved, and so she's the producer of the video, and her project is she has to make the video of him making the computer. That was the whole deal we made as a family
0: okay that, that's uh that's quite first uh congrats it seems like uh you have you know quite the caliber of <laughs> of kids, but I mean, you know it's amazing how much uh kids grasp these different technologies. Um, And then you actually shared uh, a key use case that we have. What we're seeing is students are creating more videos than, you know, that rate is increasing significantly more over the past couple of years than teachers. And um, what's happening is even with, you know, the advent of AI, for example, where people were submitting a paper or a report um, it's hard to really know if that's authentic or not, because there's so many different sources of content um, and what we've noticed is people do learn best by doing right It's your son is out there building a computer or you know we're out here solving an actual problem while we're we're doing, it. and it's not just based on what you consume um and so the uh we have this uh product called submit which leans into that it's a video assignment for students so they go home um wherever they are it doesn't matter if they have a device you know a computer or a phone but they record um you know a response to a prompt and that could be hey you know Reflect on this uh, week and, you know, some of the challenges or talk to me about the product uh, or the project that you're working on. And as people and students start to explain that or respond to that, that's where a lot of learning comes. That goes to the teacher for feedback, coaching, um, and makes that in-person time just that much more impactful. But you're, you're kind of hit on exactly what we're trying to scale is, um, you know, People love videos. They create them. They do. You know, it's kind of a a part of your life, your day to day life, and it's uh, it's a great way to show it.
2: So, can we go on Screencastify and create that video there, or do I have to be part of the system?
0: Yeah, well, Screencastify is free to get going. Um, so anyone can use it. It's used by you know over the course of the, you know, tens of millions of people have, have used it and, um, you know, recorded videos. And so it's very easy to start going. I think what, you know, once you start to get into the different integrations, um, and support tiers and there are some premium items, that's where there's, uh, you know, things that we've charge for, but to get going, it's completely free. All right. And it's, it's found on the, uh, Chrome app store. You can go to screencastify.com or go straight to the Chrome store, um, and download it off of there. And so it's built into the browser directly.
2: All right. And I happen to know that her school is one of the ones that uses the, uh, the Chromebook. So it will be on that as well. And so it would make a lot of sense for her to learn this as soon as possible. Cause it'll get her ready for school. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if she's Atlanta public schools, I think we do work with a handful of, uh, schools within that district.
2: I'm 99% sure that they get Chromebooks. Um, Yeah. My son brings home one every once in a while. All right. Tell us a little bit entrepreneurial history here about the mergers and such. Um, give us a little bit of the entrepreneurial background.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I, um, it, it's nothing goes according to plan, right? I think that's uh, lesson number one, I guess. Um, so I was studying for a financial certification back in the day and I don't want to date myself, but this was pre iPad. Um, and so, um, it was called the CFA. It's like a self-study, uh, three years certification. Uh, you have to, they basically toss over a bunch of encyclopedias and say, hey, good luck. You can take the test once a year. If you fail, you have to wait another year. Um, Don't ask me why I I, uh, embarked on this, but um, it gave me an opportunity to see like, hey, you know, learning can be a little bit different. Um, It can be much better. It needs to be more engaging, personalized. We're starting to get all these mobile devices. And going through that challenge and the, you know, the process of studying that way really opened my eyes to um, the the world of education. It wasn't something that I had an idea well before. And, um, you know, we, uh, a friend of mine who I was friends with since high school, who's also had a similar type of mindset and was ready at that point in time after his first job to, say, hey, let's go start something up. Um, We kind of connected, discussed a few ideas and went after this and uh, evolved and started our first company called LearnCore um, into an educational platform that was um, really focused on the uh, corporate sector um, where we would help train salespeople directly and uh, really scale that we pioneered a concept called virtual role-playing. And so it's where people can practice their pitch. um, And similarly, it goes to their manager for coaching and feedback. And, you know, you have salespeople all over the world. The world is changing constantly. How do you know if they're on point? And we needed this capability that allowed people to record their screen if they're giving a sales demo or a presentation and came across Screencastify back in the day. Um, and it was actually something that my, a product that my co-founder used and, you know, there's many ways and we were bootstrapped, uh, mostly as a business. We took in a little bit of capital, but we use our profit to reinvest in the business. And, um, we had the opportunity to either build this or, you know, partner and, or buy it. And, uh, you know, we came across the founder of Screencastify. Really um, loved the product, how easy it was, and um, the flexibility it offered. And we actually initially partnered, and then decided to, uh, you know, acquire a significant portion of of Screencastify. And then they was operating independently. Screencastify was just getting going, um, and. LearnCore, uh which is the first company actually was acquired in 2018 by another company called showpat which is a bigger player in sales and they weren't interested in screencastify um so we spun off screencastify and screencastify has been operating um on its own you know ever since but it wasn't part of that transaction and I've been on the board of uh, Screencast for for quite some time since 2016 and stepped in, um, you know, as CEO uh, at the beginning of 2023 uh, last year. Just more um, involved. And, you know, this is also a bootstrap type of business. There's no external funding. And the main thing that you realize is the your boss is the customer at this point. Right, like We want to listen to the teachers, we want to listen to the students, to the principals, to the district administrators, the parents. That's how we're able to really make sure that we solve a real problem. And that's the beauty of um, kind of building a business where there isn't an investor or a venture fund that you're reporting to constantly. It's really the customers who tell us, hey, yeah, this is on track or, hey, this isn't on track. And so Um, this screencast by is more in the K through 12 space. It's a bigger company, um, really grew, um, significantly over COVID and, uh, you know, has been adopted by almost 3000 school districts across the U S. Um, and just to give you an idea, there's, I think, uh, 14 or 15,000, uh, school districts in the U S. So it's a significant, uh, percentage of that. And we were just out in UK, uh, last week and, really see um, intention for us going uh, international especially as we launch more uh, foreign language uh, support and translation and transcription where everyday videos can really tap into all those uh, different components for learning.
2: Well, congratulations on that amazing success. That is very impressive and an interesting history. Vishal, obviously you're More successful than the average University of Michigan graduate. Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Why? What's your secret sauce? What makes you on the one percent?
0: Well, you know, I I appreciate that. Um
2: Especially out of University of
0: Michigan, you know, my (laughs) friend. I mean, that's extra impressive. You know, the we can refer to them as the, as the national champions, um, <laughs> university of Michigan. That's it.
2: Y'all won the women's field hockey this year. Is it, <laughs> do, do I remember that correctly? Uh,
0: you know, we, and, and that, and maybe, uh, in small print, you must've just overread the, uh, the men's football, uh, national champion, but yeah, I did not hear no, about no, that. No, no one's keeping track here nor there, but, uh, you know, I I think um a lot of there there isn't like one recipe that I I think makes sense um or is the answer. I think a lot of it is self-motivation and self-drive and kind of the grit behind it. Um there were probably you know, there are dozens of times uh throughout the journey where it doesn't make sense to continue. Like for a logical reason or you get no's or you're really, you know, your back's against the wall. Hey, I could get this other job that actually compensates me more right now. And, um, being, having the grit and the thick skin, honestly, to not take that no for an answer or to take that no and figure out a way to continue is really the key, I think, in in all of this. Um, there, I truly believe there's no problem that is unsolvable. Um, and so, you know, the the fail fast um, catchphrase that has been, you know, that everyone talks about. I I disagree with that. I think, um, you know, there's there's a level of pivoting. Um, but if you're trying to just, you know, the if you take the fail fast approach, then the second you get a no, you're kind of, you're like, okay, this is a failure. It's not going to work. Um, but if you think of it the other way is like, I have to do anything in my power to make this work, you're going to get it done. So I I really think it's a mindset more than anything uh, that has been there. And then second is um, to be resourceful. You can do a lot with a little, you know, these companies raise so much money and, have, they think they need a million people all these different specialized roles um, you know the thing that I believe is and that I think is also part of the secret sauce is um, I think if you with Google and now chat GPT in one week you can be 90 percent proficient in a lot of topics I didn't know anything about SEO you know when we were starting and I learned it um, I didn't know much about development or product or all of these, you know, education for that matter. Um, But if you're really deep and focused, you can learn and get that uh, level of proficiency relatively quickly. Yes, you have to lean on others and know what you're good at and what you're not. But there's a baseline where you don't need a very expensive consultant to, you know, tell you what to do. Sometimes it is just common sense and, and working towards it.
2: I love that. Great, great stuff. Especially when you mention, you know, getting your no and you get your first pushback. Um, right. I was telling my son as we were building the computer that I had an experience when I was a little bit younger of building my first piece of furniture, and I was working with one of my father's best friends who had taken me on to teach me to build furniture and we were carrying the carcass. We had built 90% and dropped it and it broke through one of the corners when, uh, the man, you know, a couple days later turned to me and said, you know, I really learned to like you when you didn't get upset when you, when we dropped the carcass, it was mostly his fault, of course. (laughs) And he was like, you didn't get upset. You know, we were you were pleasant. And I was telling my son, I was really impressed with you. son. when we turned the computer on for the first time, nothing happened, absolutely nothing happened. And you didn't get upset. You just were like, huh, well, how do we solve this? And so you expressed that very well. And again, my son is on my mind, uh, just because of, we're talking education and stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I was just, my, my son is five years old. Um, And he just turned five and he's into Legos, right? Um, but he is obsessed with Legos and he's doing like, uh, eight plus nine plus in terms of age Legos. And, um, and it's also with, with sports in a way is at the beginning, it's, it's hard work. It's like, you know, you can't figure it out. It's like painful. And, but, it starts to get fun and you got to enjoy this whole whole process, but you know, I'm sure your son enjoys the journey part of it, the building part of it, the, you know, all of that, like, despite if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to push forward, but the beginning part is work until it does get fun. And so I think, you know, you're not going to just pick up an instrument and be good at it and have fun with it. It's going to take, take a lot of effort to get to that baseline.
2: I love Legos. We're also, uh, my eight-year-old daughter is into Legos at the moment. And I think they're just amazing for the confidence snowball. You know, we, yeah. you know, you get a little bit of confidence. Comp- you did it. Congratulations. You know, oh, wow. You yeah. built a, an eight-year-old and you're only five, you know, and right. an yeah. eight-year-old kit. That's amazing. You're smarter than the average nine-year-old. I'm so, yeah, that, yep. um, you're creating those situations for your children to succeed. And that's why I am going to start using screencastify with my children to create a situation where they will succeed and then grow their confidence snowball.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I was just going to draw the link to it where, um, you know, in Screencastify people on average, um, they practice about six times before they submit the video. Like if they're giving a, a talk or if they're presenting something or sharing something. And so that gives, that is a conf that's practice, right? That's the practice part, the confidence boosting side, um, before they submit it to their teacher or to their parent or whatever it may be. And so it doesn't matter. Like for us, we work with um, elementary all the way to high school and there are different topics that resonate, but it is, quite dynamic because, you know, the prompt and the topic can be, you know, for a, a young child, it can be like, Hey, how was your week? Like, what was the hardest thing you did this week? What was the, your favorite thing you did this week? You know, and, and it all starts to really build on itself Because when we you ask our kids, how school was, you know, good. Fine, right. right. A
2: was right.
0: fine. Right. Right. How do we but find out a, more follow
2: yeah. online and continue to learn about you?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I really, uh, encourage you to check us out online. Um, and yeah, and individually, you know, I'm passionate about education. So happy to support any entrepreneurs that are really embarking on this journey as well.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it and hope you'll come back and give us an update in a year.
0: Absolutely. Would love to thank you so much.
2: And we will be right
0: back. So that's a that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh my gosh, I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's that's a awesome. that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question.
2: That's a great question, and and I don't have a great answer. It
1: that's a great
0: question. Oh, that is such a loaded question, yeah, and that's actually a really good question. School for Startups
1: Radio.
2: We are back, and again, thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce another great guest and another great topic. Please welcome... Melanie Vandeveld, we should actually say Dr. Melanie Vandeveld. She has had a very impressive career and is doing all sorts of cool things in the leadership development space. She has a new book out called Lead Like a Genius: How to Outgrow the Competition and Transform Your World. She is uh the Adam Smith prize winner for research in her space. And she is the social innovation research director at Cambridge. I'm teasing you. Of course, we know it's Cambridge, but one of our jokes that we always do. Melanie is we mispronounce the names of famous schools like Harvard and Duke and stuff like that. (laughs) Just it's one of our stupid running jokes. Anyway, welcome to this show. Doctor, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to our chat.
2: Likewise, likewise. So you were working on sustainability. Is that environmental sustainability at the macro level, at the micro level for my company? Help us explain your overall research.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, so actually my, my, my background is, is, is business, originally engineering actually. Um, And uh, ultimately, via, 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 I ended up running a a, a startup business in the Kibera Slum in Nairobi, really to empower young women who had no education with training and employment opportunities. Super amazing experience, but also super challenging. And that's really what led me to do my research. My research is really around if you as a business, you want to make a difference to the, the kind of biggest issues that we face in our world, um, if we take starting point, you know, the United Nations, SDG, so that includes the lot. So it's not just environmental, climate change, pollution, the plastics crisis, but it's also poverty, social exclusion and inequality. How can you really as a business tackle this with the, with the best outcomes? As in generally making a difference, getting a much better impact return on your investment, but also to gain the competitive advantages that, uh, that tend to come with it.
2: All right. Is it my responsibility in a small business here, just trying to keep the lights on, to solve those problems?
1: Yeah, well, it's. I would say it's all our responsibility. and um, I, I think we're only going to fix it really when business play their part of the jigsaw puzzle. I think they have actually the biggest part to play. Um, but I think from a business perspective, it's becoming really important if you want to have good long-term outcomes. Um, what we see increasingly with studies, but also cases, is that actually those that are better at this, and it's not about, you know, often we think think back, that kind of thing. And that's, I wouldn't say necessarily the responsibility. It's more about how we do business that's going to really fix all these issues um, and if you incorporate it in your business, you see it actually those really outperform. So, studies like by Deloitte show that those that do grow three times faster now than their competitors, and um, we see that those have more engaged teams. It's much easier to attract talented staff, particularly the younger ones. We say 86% say they would even take a pay cut to work in companies that do this better. Um, and ultimately, you, you'll have a better valuation long term. So, like Kantar reports, uh, a plus 175% valuation for companies that get this right. So, yeah, I would say it's 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 a thing that's important for our future, for the future of our world, for ourselves, for our children, grandchildren. But it's becoming really kind of something we can't really avoid now from a, from a business perspective as well.
2: All right, so when we say do this, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So what do I have to do? What are the... I don't know the bare minimum that I should be doing <laughs> in my five person business. You know, we sell gizzards. I don't know, uh-huh. you know if gizzard is It's like the intestine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's disgusting. I'm making this up as I go. We don't really do that. But for the example, I'm the world's best gizzard supplier. So as my company grows, trying to take over the gizzard space, what is the bare uh-huh. minimum that I'm, that you should think that I, you know, that you won't slap me if you see me at dinner one night.
1: Uh
2: huh. Okay. 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 Jim, what are gizzards? Oh, gizzards are the uh, the intestines of pigs. Then we fry them. Oh goodness! And they're like chips. <laughs> okay.
1: It's the most All disgusting right. food on earth. It's oh, mu- it sounds awful. Yeah, that it's, sounds it's just awful.
2: Oh, it's absolutely. <laughs> but you buy them. You don't even buy uh-huh. them in restaurants, Melanie. You buy them on the side of the uh-huh. road from people. Uh, Boiling them in huge forty-gallon mm. oil barrels that are left over from OPEC, uh-huh. and the, you know the barrels have all the uh-huh. grease and dirt and rust from you know thirty years. Uh-huh. But that grease—it's the nastiest thing on earth.
1: Oh, so oh, terrible! Yeah, I'm just okay, it, nice you know, business.
2: <laughs> I don't really do that, but that's the joke we always do. So it's a gizzard uh-huh. company. What do, okay. what do I got to do?
1: Yeah, so I would say I I don't really tell people with their businesses what the best things are that they can do, but it's actually more about asking the questions. So if you look at the key global issues, right? So there is roughly divide them up in poverty, social exclusion, inequality-related issues. The other is more environmental. So you talk about you know climate, um, pollution, air pollution, plastic pollution. Um, and then there's our health and well-being. Essentially, it comes down to that. And I think it's always by far the best when companies look at look, what are the best practices around the world in each of these areas? What are the types of things that you can do? And then decide, look, actually, that's something that can work really well in my company, fits really well with, with my, 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 me as a person, my business, as a culture, things I want to make a difference on, the value I want to create to the world. And, 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 and ask yourself the questions. Really, like, as part of your business, as part of where do I buy, where do I buy, how do I deal, you know, with my supply chains? And if, if we're talking about this gizzard business, instant things that come to mind to me are, right, okay, what ingredients do you actually use in producing your gizzards in terms of how do they impact the health and well-being of the people that eat them, for example? That is an area probably to look at. Um, it's, it's, it's how do you pay your suppliers, you know, and, and what conditions do, do the suppliers have? Uh, what, what, you know, how does that impact the health and well-being of the animals? But also, the, you know, the, is, it, is it something, a supplier that, you know, is in the U.S. or where in the world are they and how does it impact them, for example? So it's really looking much more at what are the kind of key areas in your business and how does it impact the planet? And it's it sometimes it sometimes means altering products. It, it sometimes means altering ingre- ingredients. Um, and I think particularly if you if you're saying you're a very small gizzard company, it's the best place to start. All right. Well,
2: I understand that, Melanie. That makes a lot of sense. But what if I'm a, a small technology company and we design websites and we don't have really any suppliers? All we have is electricity. And we have to keep our computers on. Is there anything that we, as a small company, can do?
1: Yeah, I I, I bet you'd be surprised how more you can do. Um, even as a as a small company on a small scale, and it, as you grow, any impact can grow with you. Um, so, t- typically, what, what you will read in my book as well, you know, if you go through each of the four areas of um, and. What, Called like empowerment opportunities for people, um, and on the planet side, on the health and well-being side, there will be things that apply to even your small team. Um, it'll apply to you know also depending you know how you work with your customers, things that you could you could widen your impact that way. Um, but it's it's really about being inspired by some of these examples and then decide as a as a founder, as a as the owner, as a as a team. How you're going to implement that, and it, it could be things like even how the ownership of the business is, and how you'd want to structure that in the future. For example, that can have a massive impact on company performance, but also in terms of how you build these, how you build these things. In so, it's it's hard to get like a recipe of right. This is it. This is what you do in in a, in a certain company. It's much more about looking at the examples and looking at the questions, and then from that decide. How does that fit with your company? How does it fit with you as a person, as a founder, where you want to go in the future? And really the value that you want to create for, for the world, aside from, um, obviously, um, you know making profits and being, being financially solid.
2: All right, so let's talk more in detail about the book, Lead Like a Genius, How to Outgrow the Competition and Transform Your Book. The geniuses you talk about are Mozart, Einstein, Picasso, Van Gogh, Da Vinci, and some others, I imagine. What is the trait that yes, right? sets them apart? Uh is it their IQ, EQ, good hair? What what sets it apart? And then how does it lead to your thesis in the book?
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. So yeah, so it's actually it's interesting. If if you think about a genius, the first thing you probably think is they must have high IQ. Um, but what, what's really interesting is, is Albert Woldeberg did research into that um, at Harvard back in 1979. And actually, that's not their common trait. So what sets them apart from other very, you know, talented people at the, at, at the same time is that they have one thing that they do differently. Um, and that's to do with our brain. Our human brain is wired that when we are faced with opposites, we see either one or the other but we really struggle to see and combine both opposites. And that's precisely what the most famous geniuses in history did differently. So Einstein played with objects both at motion and at rest. Picasso conveyed images um, of both light and, and, and dark at the same time at an integrated whole. It's um, You know, what you see in the ancient Eastern philosophies illustrated by the yin and yang symbol, and and, and really symbolizing that, if you get that right, if you, if you balance two opposites, you can actually get to the, to the most spectacular outcomes. And that's precisely what I found with my research, is that when I tried, I tried to work out, if you look at companies, regardless of their size, regardless of their sector, there are a few that have by far the best value, the best impact on the biggest challenges we face as humanity. They have that 200 to 400% better impact return but they also really outperform as a business in terms of commercial indicators like turnover, growth, um, share, increase, and, and, and all the kind of typical indicators. So I wanted to really understand why, what, what is that? And, and that's really what the book is all about. It's, it, it turns out that there's really two patterns. One is, 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 that, is that they balance the business objectives really well with value for society. Um, and I, I, I think if you, if you understand that and you understand what the possibilities are, and you build that in, into your business and, and, and how you work as a team, yeah, you can be, you, you can have, you know, not just this more significant competitive advantages, but you can really help to transform our world. Um, and I think that is, is, is really, if we look at the key issues that we face, is, is, a, is a, big, a big key to, um, to the solution.
2: All right. So, what do we learn, for example, from Mozart? What is the, the lesson we need to take from him? And, and then, is there any geniuses out there today that you've been able to identify? You know, is Elon Musk going to fit into the category, or Gates, or Zuckerberg, or that Apple guy? Well,
1: it's interesting. That's a really good question because, and um, if you apply that indeed to business, right? If we if we would look at who gets it really right um, are any of those getting it right and I, and I and I would say no so if we look at them the, the two opposites in business which is people talk about profits and purpose or people talk about you know profits and making a difference um, and and who in the world is getting that right so I would say the ones that you mentioned don't really I think their focus is first and foremost really profits first maybe some separate goal of, of making a difference but it's 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 separate, right, from the business, and it's a secondary thing. Um, so if we look at the ones that actually do, so who are the geniuses then? So those are the examples that, you know, you'll find in my book, in the different areas of, of, of making a difference. And I'd, I'd love to give you a couple of examples because it all sounds maybe a little bit abstract. I think Interface is a brilliant example. Um, you, you know, it's an um, American company, but it's, it's operating in over 100 countries. They're market leader in, in carpet tiles. And they went from being a very high-polluting, high-emitting company to now being a global leader in sustainability. Um, so they have managed to go, not just to reach you know, net zero, but they're going beyond zero. There's a great documentary about them also called Beyond Zero. Um, and it, it shows that if, if a big company like that can do it, actually anyone can. So they've changed some of their products. Um, I think a brilliant example of, of what they're currently doing is they've, they've developed um, and innovated carpet tiles that are carbon absorbing, so carbon negative. So that also is a big plus for customers, right, who buy their carpet tiles, like PWC, for example. It helps them reduce their carbon emissions. And so, so that's an example of a company that does it really well, not just because, you know, they have integrated that throughout their business, in, in a, in, in a, throughout all their teams' Um, on the planet side, and they're now also starting more on on the on the social impact side as well. Um, but what's really good about them is what you see a lot is that companies that do that, they forget about the profit side, and it's really those that don't. So, so so they've had to learn that lesson the hard way. Also, they had some initiatives, you know, of using fab of our materials that actually the customers didn't really want. So that then it's not going to be very successful. But so I would say they're a brilliant example um, of, of, of really getting that right. Um, if there's time, there's another example that I think always triggers really good um, inspiration for people of, of out of the box thinking. The, the kind of things that you can do, um, and that's Schiphol Airport. Um, so Schiphol Airport uses a lot of light, and you might know that lights, like you know many other products, is, is designed for intentionally for a shorter duration than it than it could. Um, and so, um, essentially, Schiphol went to its supplier, Philips, and said, we no longer want to buy light as a service, but we'd like to, uh, uh, light as in products, but we like a fixed contract for three years, and you're now responsible to replace any fixtures and fittings um, and to pay the energy bill. And that completely changed the incentive for Philips designers to develop more durable light bulbs, fixtures and fittings that were easier to replace in parts, um, and also that were more energy efficient. And that reduced energy usage by 50%, fixtures and fittings and all the related emissions and waste that comes with it by 75%. So that's a huge change, you know, simply just by changing a model on its head. And, and, and that's something that you can apply in many other, many other um, areas. So here in Singapore is doing it for air conditioning, with cooling as a service. I think it would be amazing if we did the same thing with PCs and laptops, for example. Um, if, if you know the enormous e-waste issues that's, um, that we're facing globally and it's growing really fast. So that's another example. So it's,
2: it's Melanie, it's explain it's, that better. How does the PC model work? How do we solve the PC problem? I, you,
1: so yes, yeah, so I think if you apply the Schiphol example uh, to, to PCs and laptops, for example. So imagine what happens now is that you see companies, you know, laptops, PCs coming to that kind of end of end of life as far as the quality of, um, is, is concerned for using in a company. So they're sometimes donated, for example, to charity, which seems a lovely thing to do. But then what is often forgotten is, well, what happens to those later down the line? Um, and what we know is that actually, ultimately, they don't last for an awful lot longer and they end up as as waste. Um, And they often get shipped in containers to typically certain countries in Africa and Asia where um, they are dismantled, for example, on on e-waste sites. And and I don't know if you've you've seen any pictures of it or heard anything about that, but it's extremely polluting. Um, And not not just for the environment, but like it's often small children that work on dismantling the the, the pieces and they're burning copper, for example, to retrieve some of the, the copper material and um, and it leads to things like uh, illnesses such as cancer it it it's um yeah it, it has a terrible impact on the people dealing with it um and so it's also a complete waste of of materials you know that are then hard to recover and so what we see is that a lot of these products are intentionally built that way that they no longer they no longer meet the software requirements, for example. And so if we did that differently, if we did like Schiphol, you know, we went to our suppliers and said, look, actually, we, we don't want to buy them as products anymore. You know, we're happy to keep giving turnover and have a kind of leasing model, but to have that leasing model work in a way whereby you are maintaining it and make sure that actually these products are created to be durable um, and, you know, they might, they might get refurbished, for example." um but we can still use them 10 years down the line 15 years down the line or at least you know the components are 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 used again um so that if if we do things more like that so more this kind of proper circular design solutions and really take the whole system into account that can make a massive a massive difference yeah
2: all right very interesting how do i use this and you mentioned how important it is for the younger generations to talk about this and to do this as part of my recruiting and retaining the younger generation. So how do I use this and my efforts to, and how do I tell recruits about this? How do I use this in my HR? And since I'm an old guy who doesn't really understand, is it a good idea to choose a youngster in my office and say, you're going to be in charge of sustainability and you you want authority, you want to be in control of stuff. Here's something for you to be in control of. I don't understand it. Your job is to teach and educate me and to lead the company. And it seems to me like I could... Get better as a company, make my employee happy by giving them authority and control over something. kill a lot of birds with one stone. Melanie is that okay
1: uh, um, i I think it's it's a personal approach um you you could you could go that way. you could employ someone to be responsible for it, and um, I think regardless of whether you do that, whether you use external consultants or whether You know, existing the existing team gets trained and aware of it, and I think there's different ways of doing it. Um, But I think what's really important is that it becomes a real integrated part of the of the company, and it's not sitting. You know, it's not like a separate CSR kind of department or person who who has to deal with it on its own, Um, because that usually doesn't work very well. And I I also think that it's it's really good for the founder um the CEO, you know the person in charge to to have a fair good understanding. So if you're saying, look, you know, indeed you, you're running a small business and you know you have you don't have that much understanding of it, I think it's really good to get to get just at least more aware. Um, you know, maybe read 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 my book for example. <laughs> or you, go. you know, join a workshop, do a training course to because it is something that is—it's—it's it's, if you want to get it right, it's actually ingrained in your, in your business, um, and so it's—it's it's, it's, yeah, it tends to be quite helpful if the people um, who are in charge also have a, a, at least some level of understanding of what's possible. No Lead problem. like a
2: genius: How to outgrow the competition and transform your world. Dr. Melanie Vandavaldi. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: A real pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me.
2: It was my pleasure. We're out of time, but we will be back. Don't forget, Valentine's, buy something now. Have a great day. Bye now.